0: Having a coach is what the greatest of the great do. Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts.
1: One Broken Cog Podcast back in the saddle again, like Aerosmith in their prime. Now listen, I'm pumped for this episode. I'm back. Yeah, there you go. Now, you know, they say you're either growing or you're dying. Right? Or you're either learning or you're regressing. And listen, today I plan to learn from one of the best. Now, my special guest today is the definition of winner, the epitome of his resiliency. This man went from $1.5 million in the bank to $2.5 million in debt. Now, most people would look at this as a loss. Now, I happen to agree with Nelson Mandela when he said, you're only winning or you're learning. And this man did not take this as a loss but a learning experience. He made adjustments that led to a major impact in the form of being back to debt-free 13 short months later. And he did this by giving his way out of debt. It's incredible. And he's here to share that remarkable feat and give advice on investing, business ownership, and why it's so important for business leaders and entrepreneurs to find their big why. Now the man I'm referring to is Mr. Paul Moore. Now to give you some background on Paul, after a stint at Ford Motor Company, Paul co-founded a staffing firm where he was finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years straight. After selling the staffing firm to a publicly traded company for a cool $2.9 million, Paul began investing in real estate, founded multiple investment development companies, appeared on HGTV, and eventually built and co-managed a successful multifamily development. Now, Paul hosts two podcasts including The Art of Investing and How to Lose Money. He's also a contributor to Fox Business and Bigger Pockets, producing live video and blog content on a weekly basis. Paul is also the author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. And he's also the Managing Director of Three Commercial Real Estate Funds at Willings Capital. Paul, listen, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cock podcast.
0: Hey, it's great to be here. And sorry for that little introduction with the Aerosmith. I, it just popped out of my seventh grade brain, you know, I from 1976. It. But anyway. You know, right.
1: you, I, you, know you can't <laughs> help it. Listen, I, watch, I remember watching a fight. It was like a Randy Couture fight, and he came out to that. And right when the I'm back hit, he came out of it. It was awesome. It was like goosebumps
0: on your arms. It was killer. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I saw Aerosmith in concert in 77, and uh, they did that song. Uh, I, I don't think they remember it, but I do. <laughs> there you go. All those shows are a blur at this point, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they they had some serious drug and alcohol problems back in those days, but they have endured. They bounced back. And I love that about Aerosmith. They're a great uh, parable for business people, you know, because everybody makes mistake, mistakes. Everybody loses money. We learned that on our How to Lose Money show with 225 guests. And people bounce back and they bounce back big time.
1: I'm telling you, the best laid schemes of mice and men, you can always have a solid game plan, but it's how you react to adversity. I mean, listen, you can have, like I said, a game plan when you get punched in the face, how do you react to it? And listen, that leads us to our first topic, which is the details on how you landed 2.5 million in debt that bounced back to being debt free 13 months later by giving. Would love to hear about that. That's fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy story. And what makes it even harder uh, and, and more amazing, and I didn't even realize the significance of this two years later, was it happened in the very heart of the Great Recession. So I had a million and a half in the bank after selling my company and paying a few taxes and giving uh, you know, to some things we cared about. And um, 10 years later to the month, I had two and a half million, like you said, in debt. But it wasn't with credit cards and and businesses that failed. It was all against real estate because I was into real estate investing. And um, about that time, my business partner came to me and he said, you know, these interest payments are crushing me. I'm going to go ahead and sign all the deeds of these properties over to you and the debt as well. And so I uh, was happily, uh, you know, basically laden, burdened with a lot more debt at that point. And This was November of 2007, and of course, we were already in the recession. We just didn't know how bad it was going to get. We thought, oh, maybe the worst is over. Maybe things are going to pick up in January, but of course, we were about to plummet down the black hole called the great financial crisis of 2008 and beyond. Didn't know that. So um, around December of that year, a couple friends of mine and I uh, met for breakfast and they said, um, we've got to talk to you. Uh, we know you're in big trouble. Uh, they knew my CPA real well and we were all open with you know information. And they said, it looks like you're going to have to file bankruptcy, huh? And I said, no, I'm going to give my way out of debt. And they said, what? Well, the Sunday before that, I had been doing this morning meditation time, and I thought, I had this really strong impression, what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller is a, he was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s. He sort of became a saint, moved to England, and he started orphanages, and he started caring for five or 10 orphans, then 50 or 100, and then a 1,000. He ended up caring for 10,000 total orphans in the you know, next 70 years in total. And he did it all because, like, he did it all by, he never marketed, he never advertised, he never did a single fundraiser on the smallest scale even, he never told a single person that he had any needs at all, because he wanted to leave a written record for the world that that he could, that based on prayer and faith and doing good, he would be able to raise all the money he needed. And he raised... Some people say a quarter, some people say up to a half a billion dollars in today's U.S. dollars in the next like 70 years. And so I thought, what would George Mueller do? Well, he would do something completely radical, and I decided I would too. I'm going to try to give my way out of debt. So I announced this to my wife and four kids. My wife was on board, but barely. And uh, we started giving generously in January of 2008. Again, not knowing the black hole we were about to plunge down. I was using my home equity line, which I don't recommend, but uh, I, I just thought it was the right thing to do. Well, about four weeks later, I had an idea that dropped in my brain out of nowhere, Brian. And this idea led to me being able to split up A five-acre waterfront parcel that had very little marketability as five acres, but had tremendous marketability as five one-acre lots. Well, the problem is lots weren't selling in 2008. People were running away from buying waterfront property. They were selling, trying to get out of debt. Well, at any rate, I was able to sell all five waterfront lots. 13 months later, I was completely debt-free. Now, did you sell those at the top right before the the bubble burst or at the back? No, I sold them. I sold them. Get this. Three of the five lots were sold in September of 2008, which is like the worst month since the Great Depression. I'm surprised. You know, it's interesting. My father was very lucky. We
1: were both lucky. My father actually sold a house on the beach right before this whole thing. And he didn't even know it was going to happen. He just did it because, you know, he wanted to be closer to the kids. So he made a ton on that. And then I bought my first home during that whole time when everything was at the at rock bottom. But the reason no. I mentioned this, it was so difficult to even buy one at that point because it, before that, everybody was just giving away loans based on state income and, and things like that. Now, I mean, you, it was like an FBI probe. It was unbelievable. It was like you're trying to apply yeah. to get into Quantico. Um, was it difficult actually selling those properties because of that? Or, or maybe it was due to the area you were in?
0: Well, the area we were in was just not selling. I mean, we were three or four hours from DC, three or four, hour, two or three hours from Raleigh and Charlotte. And so it was a very, very popular area uh, between 2000 and 2006 or seven. But when things went down, I mean, people, you know, nobody needs to buy a waterfront resort you know, retirement home. And nobody in a bad, scary time usually wants to build a home from the ground up. So waterfront property was bad. Waterfront lots were even worse, but we were still able to sell them. That's amazing. What a blessing. Now, you know, you
1: were a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you started 20 plus businesses. Why did you end up devoting your life to multifamily investing? Why the shift?
0: Yeah, you know, I tell people, uh, I told a guy last night, if if I would have known in my early 20s what I know now, I would never have done anything but commercial real estate. Now, I consider multifamily, large-scale multifamily is commercial, is a form of commercial real estate. It's not, you know, obvious at first glance that it is, but it is. So um, we love commercial real estate because if you take a residential house, let's say you're Chip and Joanna Gaines Jr. and you're flipping this house you buy it for $300,000, you do all kinds of fix-up, repair, rehab, remodeling, beautiful pictures, and you've got $600,000 in it, but you're in a neighborhood of $400,000 homes, you're not going to get your six hundred dollars out of it most likely. But in commercial real estate, it's entirely different, Brian. Commercial real estate is based on math. And anybody who loves math will really love this because there's a value formula. And the value formula is actually somewhat similar to stocks. And that is the value is the net operating income divided by the rate of return, also known as the cap rate or the capitalization rate. And so if you can increase the numerator, the net operating income, and if you can possibly compress the denominator, the cap rate, you can't always do that, you can predictably raise the value of the property. And so uh, quick example, let's say we invested in well, it was a, a true story, but I'm changing the numbers a little bit to make them easy math. Uh, invested in a mobile home park, it was $5 million. We, we and some others put $2 million down and got $3 million in debt. So there was 60% loan to value ratio on the debt. $5 million property went in and said, you know, there's all these cars up on blocks and extra cars and work trucks and boats and RVs cluttering this place up. We're going to run this place professionally. So we, um, my uh, business partner on this set up a one acre paved area with a fence and a gate in front. And he said, hey, if you've got an extra car, boat, RV, work truck, et cetera, you're going to have to park it in here and we'll charge you a monthly fee and then when all those people had done that they cleaned up the park so the park was actually more marketable and we could raise the rent a little bit but now we went out to the public on craigslist and said hey look boat and rv storage right here and so we rented it out and when it's fully rented it'll be bringing in 10,000 a month well 10,000 a month is obviously 120,000 a year and there's no additional cost with doing this it only cost 100,000 in capital to set it up Now, the net operating income is 120,000 higher. 120,000, remember our value formula, Brian. It's value Mm -hmm. equals net operating income divided by cap rate. Well, the cap rate is like six and a half percent, let's say. It really is less, but I mean, in other words, the value is even higher, but let's say six and a half percent. You divide uh 200, 120,000 a year, excuse me buy six or six and a half percent cap rate. I can't remember which it is. And you'll get two million dollars. You just added two million dollars to the value of this mobile home park. And guess what? You only had two million in cash in it in the first place. So you added 40 percent to the value of the park, but 100 percent to the investor's equity. And that's just by making one change out of a dozen changes you could make. So commercial real estate is powerful. And I think this is why most of the Forbes 400 wealthiest people in the world invest in commercial real estate, Brian. I completely understand. And you, you talk about the secrets that are used by the
1: super wealthy to attain and maintain their wealth over generations and the fact that we're not invited. What, what do you mean by that? What, what's their secret?
0: So one of the secrets is investing in commercial real estate and having access to these big deals like you know these 5 million dollar mobile home parks or even when you get bigger you know maybe into the 40 million 50 million dollar self storage and mobile home park portfolios you get access to these big deals and the um, not only is the profit predictable in the way i just described but also there's ridiculous tax breaks i mean if the american people knew how little real estate investors pay in taxes there'd be another tax revolt and this time it'd be against us. So we're going to have to talk about that. I need to uh, take you
1: up on that offer of uh, saving money on taxes. I mean, the multifamily investing, you literally, as you mentioned, partner with the IRS to reap significant profits while paying virtually no taxes. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how that works.
0: Yeah. So I could go through a very, very long explanation of that. But I will tell you that a a friend of mine was talking about partnering with the IRS and I was scratching my head. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the IRS, and this was pre-2017, he said, you know, they really, really give real estate investors a pass on a ton of taxes. I mean, there's very little tax uh, payable by real estate investors if it's done right. And so that's why I jokingly refer to it as partnering with the IRS. But (laughs) you can get depreciation along the way. And, you know, for like up to five or even seven years of owning a property, you might not pay any taxes on the income. You can also refinance and pull your equity out and not pay any tax on that equity. You get back and you can use that money to reinvest. You can also do what's called a 1031 exchange. And that allows you to, uh, you know, basically sell one property, buy another one. It's actually swapping for another one through an intermediary and kick the can down the road for years or decades on paying the taxes. If you pass away while your property is still owned, then your heirs, if it's children at least, will not, as opposed to a spouse, will not have to pay the capital gains ever because it resets the basis of the uh, value. And so there's a lot of ways to save taxes on uh, real estate. And a lot of those were even beefed up and much better since 2017. So it's a it's very, very exciting place to be. No, it definitely sounds like it. Now, for some
1: people that listen to this, they're going to say that, hey, that sounds fantastic, but it uh, sounds like it's very complicated and may cost a lot of money. Uh, what's involved in investing? How much capital do you really need to start
0: doing this just to kick off the process? And how heavy of a lift is it? Great question, Brian. I spent like eleven years in residential real estate investing, and the whole time I was scratching my head when I did think about commercial real estate. I was thinking, how much would it cost to get into that? How would I do it? Where would I, where would I get started? You know, and and I didn't know where the on ramp was. Well, thankfully, the crowdfunding rules have changed in the 2012 Tax Act. Uh, basically, they allowed. Um, a lot more visibility and information sharing, you know, uh, for syndicators, that's people who do these multifamily or self storage or mobile home park or whatever deals. And so basically, um, the minimum investment to get in with a syndicator or a fund like my company has, would typically be 25 to 50,000, that would be the minimum. And it's typically, but not always, for accredited investors. Now, accredited investors are investors who typically make a million or more, or they have a million or more in net worth, uh, or they make 200000 or more a year in income. And then with the brand new rules that came out six days ago, they can also be people who were licensed as like a Series 7 or 63 or 85 which means like a a stockbroker type. They feel like the SEC has finally, after all these years, decided that they have enough education to be able to invest as an accredited investor. It's
1: great information. Now, has the coronavirus impacted the housing market? And if it has, has it been a good impact, a bad impact? Should people jump into it now or should they wait it out? So
0: it's a shock to me that the housing market is doing as well as it is, Brian, I thought, I thought that the housing market was going to crash back in March. In fact, I told people, if you haven't sold your house by now, you better wait a couple years or maybe a long, long time, like 2008, because the market is going to crash and everything's going to go downhill and you've got a long time to wait. I even told my wife, if we were thinking about our, selling our house, we missed the window about a month ago. Well, I was completely wrong, and I was glad to be wrong because housing has, you know, with the lower interest rates and all the mobility that's going on, people leaving places like New York City, Chicago, California, there's a massive influx into certain areas, and like my area is one of those areas where people are coming. Um, It's Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia, Mm. and it's a Blue Ridge Mountain paradise, sort of like Tahoe. Well, people are coming to Florida, Virginia. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and a lot of other places. I'm sure Scottsdale's got a big influx of people. Texas I know has, Colorado. And so honestly, the market, I think it's the best I've ever seen it. In fact, the appreciation on my house, according to my realtor friend who sold me this house, she said it's more it's, you know, higher than I ever would have dreamed. Now that's on September first or second of you know, 2020, where will it be in November, December, January? I don't know. I still think it's going to take a big drop, Brian, but I don't know. I could be wrong.
1: You know, it's interesting you see, and I love the advice, you know, it's a lot of people, even in Hollywood, I mean, you look at a lot of celebrities moving to Wyoming, Texas, their economies are booming. And if you think about it, moving from New York or from, you know, California, where I'm from, you get a nice uh, profit out of the sale of the home and you can go buy an even nicer home in these other areas that you're you're referring to. So it's just a great investment opportunity or a great opportunity to take advantage of, of the times that we're in. Just a quick question. We have a lot of business owners that you know, reach out to us at One Broken Cog because they're up against the wall. And we always talk about their mission, vision, and purpose and why they're doing what they're doing and their big why. You talk about their big why. Some people, they say, I thought it was this and now I don't think it is anymore. I'm burned out. Or they haven't even figured out to begin with. Tell us about your big why and why everyone needs to have one and maybe how they can actually figure it out.
0: Well, I think I could give you a really, really long answer on that, but I'll just start by giving you a, a little truncated version here, Brian. So when I sold my company on October 7th, um, uh, to 19, what am I saying? 1997, I woke up on the 8th and I thought, man, I'm going to feel totally different with a couple million dollars in the bank. And I didn't, I didn't feel any different at all. In fact, I ended up moving to the Blue Ridge Mountains, bought a very large piece of land, build a house and I thought everything's gonna be different. Well, you know what? I wasn't any happier. In fact, I became pretty unhappy because I didn't have a great purpose. I didn't I started a nonprofit organization that never really got off the ground. I started doing a few little business things that never really worked out. And I was bored. And I think it's really, really important. I think if you talk to retired people, they'll often say they were shocked at how bored they got on the beach after about a week or two, or going fishing on a lake after about a month or two or whatever. And so I think it's really important to have a big why, a purpose. And so I I would suggest that fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims is a worthy purpose. Brian, did you know if you took the record profits, at least as of 2017, of Apple, Starbucks, Nike, and General Motors, added those record profits together, double that number, that's the approximate revenue being generated by human trafficking every year. It's appalling. That's unbelievable. And I want to, I know. And I want to believe that if I would have been alive in the 1800s, I would have been an abolitionist fighting for the freedom of slaves. Or if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is slavery. And it's happening right under our noses. So I think it's a worthy cause to try to raise awareness, to fight human trafficking, and also to rescue victims and provide some sort of place for them to get wholeness, help, and you know, healing that they need.
1: No, it's great. And that's what fuels you to be so successful. And you're using your platform and your resources to, to fight a worthy cause. I love that. That is really great. I'm all about philanthropy. And I think you've Picked a real worthy cause. Now, just real quick on the human trafficking front, because I know you're, you're battling against it, which I, you know, you're taking up the cause that not many people even know it exists, right? I mean, that's the whole myth, you know, the devil's biggest lie is, you know, convincing you he doesn't even exist at all. So, oh, with human, that's right. Yeah, with human trafficking, why is it so swept under the rug? Why do we not talk about it more often? Because there's so many other issues people talk about. It's kind of moving this to the side. Why is that? Why do you think?
0: I don't really know. You're the first person that's ever asked me that, and I don't think I have an answer, Brian. I uh, I'll, I'll tell you. I stumbled into a movie that somebody gave me to watch, and I waited like two months to watch it. But it was called *Nefarious*, mm. and it's put out by a group from Sacramento called *Exodus Cry*, and they have done an amazing job. They have like 800 hours of footage they filmed you know, a couple years ago, and they're putting it into movies. And the first movie they did was called Nefarious. It won some awards. It was very well done. It really opened up my eyes to it. But as far as why people don't, I hate to imagine what I'm going to say is true. But I mean, could it be that a lot of people in power are benefiting by human trafficking, either, you know, personally or financially, and maybe they just don't want to talk much about it. I don't know, Brian. Well, no, you know, you hit on a great point. I mean, listen, I'm not somebody who
1: likes to peel back the onion, right? You identify the problem, but really figure out at the core of its essence, why is it happening? And what's going on with it, right? What's the impact of it? How did it start? We could go down the rabbit hole all the way down on this one, but no, I think you're right. I mean, when you look at politics, how much it divides people, right? And I, always, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about immigration and this person was saying, you know, you know this person was, you know, for open borders, you know, Hey, let's just let everyone in. You know, there's no problem with that. Right. And he said, the reason for it is because our economy depends. And I said, how sad is that where, you know, we're bringing people in to exploit them and to work them with these ridiculous, you know, work hours and work conditions right. and to pay them peanuts. Right. But you're supposedly an advocate for these people, but you're really exploiting them. So I, I just couldn't understand that point of view. But, uh, yeah, with this human trafficking, you, you really have to wonder when we're spending so much money on NASA and space exploration, uh, you know, why we can't repurpose some of those funds for actual people that are being forced into into these horrible conditions, yeah. into slavery and it really is crazy and of course you look at these this uh Jeffrey Epstein case you know really cracking the code and it's uh it's very eye opening and of course there's things that you should not know that you're not supposed to know they don't want you to know because if right. you did obviously there would be like you say a coup or something that uh they wouldn't want but hey again thank you for taking up the cause because it's uh it's something that's very very real and it's something that needs to be eliminated. Obviously it's, it's a, uh, it's a horrible, horrible
0: thing. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to tell you that, and I don't have the exact numbers, but uh, the Trump white house has a huge contingent of people like 70 people, maybe full-time working on human trafficking. It's, it's a department they've set up. I mean, I'm sure it's a sub department, but at any rate there, there's, um, there's definitely a department there working on it.
1: I love it. You know, I didn't realize that, but that's, I'm glad to hear it. That, that's, that's mm-hmm. progress. And I love progress. So, you know, back to the entrepreneur, we, we have a lot of business owners here that, uh, you know, they're looking to either sell their business, they're looking to start a new business or they're kind of struggling in the business. What do you think are some of the, the traits or the, more, the qualities you really need to have to start a business from the ground up to be a successful
0: business owner out of the gate? Well, I'm going to hammer on one specific and I don't think that it's necessarily an absolute Absolute issue that you have to have, but I'm just going to hit on one that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, I used to want to have a business card. I've had a lot of business cards over the years, and I've got a drawer with about a dozen or more different ones from different companies. And um, I I really wanted to put serial entrepreneur on my card, and that was before I got into commercial real estate. And uh, Brian, I, I won't say I'm ashamed of that, but I will say, don't do that, my friend who ran for uh, governor of Colorado in uh, 2018, he was rubbing shoulders with a lot of very, very wealthy, very successful people. And he is successful too, but he's not a billionaire. But I mean, he's done well. And he said the most successful people have picked one thing when they were sometimes in their teens or early 20s. And they really, really, really learned that very well. And they never deviated. So they, they said yes to one thing, and they said no to 10,000 distractions. And I'll tell you, Brian, the worst mistakes I've made, I think, in my career were the distractions. They were, you know, being in the middle of starting something successful, ramping up, getting bored, and then looking at something else. I actually, the year I could have made more money than almost any year ever, which would have been 97 when I was selling my company, um, I got totally distracted that year and I worked on a multi-level marketing business on the side, which consumed my emotions and thoughts and such a dumb thing to do. And of course, that came to nothing. I'm not saying they all do, but that one did. And uh, I don't know how much money I left on the table that year, but it's so grievous to think of that. And that's a little picture of a serial entrepreneur's life. You know, when you're on a track and you get distracted by something else, it is so easy to lose focus and then lose everything you have. And um, I I just would tell people, go read The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan and focus on one thing and do it really, really well for a long time. Solid
1: advice. Now, do you think those mistakes or people being steered in the wrong direction or not focusing on that one thing is due to really not having a mentor to, uh, to give them that sound, solid advice and steer them back in the right direction? Or do you think it's just because that they, they're too confident, right? They think they know everything at that time and nothing can hold them back. What do you think?
0: You know, I thought it was really weird when I was young that Michael Jordan had a coach and then, you know, all these great people, these really, really great top performance, you know, Tiger Woods level Athletes have a coach, and I thought, wow, why do they have a coach? It's because they, that coach, can see things they can't see, and that nobody, you know, lesser than would ever dare tell them or could see. And so, having a coach is what the greatest of the great do. And so, you really, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an investor. If you're anything, if whatever you're doing, you really need to find somebody who's a great coach, who is a great mentor, and you need to pay within reason, of course, whatever it costs to get them on your team or to get on their team and to learn all you can from them. That is something that I didn't do for a number of years. And I think that's one of the reasons I had a lot more failures than I should have.
1: And that's well said. You know, it's funny. A lot of people, in hindsight, say, "Man, if I had a coach, would they, would I actually have listened to that person at that time in my life?" Yeah. But I think now that we have so much data behind it, so many people are utilizing, you know, coaches. Uh, I think they're more apt to to listen and take that guidance because you know a lot of times they're surrounding themselves with people that they don't want to offend them or they don't want to put themselves in a bad light. So they're agreeing no matter what. So you need to see somebody with an outside perspective to give you the honest truth, even if it may hurt right. you. Right. But it's really helping you, uh, not telling right. you what you want to hear. There's a couple more questions. Uh, now you named your book, the perfect investment. And you know, you did tell me uh, offline that there are times when the perfect investment isn't really perfect at all. Why would you say that?
0: Right. Yeah. So I really believe the demographics, the risk and return, the math, et cetera, for uh, multifamily investing, this is large scale apartment investing, is cr- creates something that I would say is a perfect investment. The problem, Brian, is thousands and tens of thousands of other people heard that message as well through all these various channels. And they start investing in multifamily. and They drove the price up to where it's unrealistically high, which means the risk is as high as it could possibly be, at least up to now. It might get higher in the future. Because the lower, the more you have to pay, the more margin of, the less margin of error you have. And so uh, I think the perfect investment is not perfect when it's overpriced. And I think that's the situation in multifamily uh, apartments right now. That's why I've expanded our Wellings Capital um, uh, investments to include self storage and mobile home parks as well.
1: Wonderful. Great, great, great. Now listen, I've, you know, I've read a lot of your pieces on uh, biggerpockets.com and uh, you know, you're always mentioning semi-boneless ham. I have no idea what that is. Would love to hear
0: uh, why you're so in love. <laughs> <with Chris. laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I don't even eat ham right now, but uh that doesn't mean I never would. But no, it's it's a joke. It's sort of a joke, Brian. So, semi-boneless ham. Does it have a bone or not? I don't know. I can't figure it out. And so I've just Started making jokes about that, and I got a small following of people who asked me about that, and so uh, I just kept mentioning it in articles. And uh, that's uh, it's 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 a it's a a sick sort of humor, I guess, Brian. Oh, it makes sense. Now, if (laughs) you
1: if you if you're going to eat ham, what type of ham would you eat?
0: Semi-boneless, for sure.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right, there you go. Now, last, very last question, Paul. Again, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Learn a ton. And we're going to talk about how people can get in touch with you for more of your insight. Last question. You're on an island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. What are they?
0: One book, one movie, and one album. Is that right? right. Yep, you got it. All right. So if I was going to do one book, it would be The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon. Because of what I said earlier. Okay. So if I was going to pick one movie, it would be one that many people haven't seen. Um, it's, It's the perfect combination in my mind of deep meaning, a brilliant script, great acting, humor, seriousness. It's called Signs. And it was with Mel Gibson. And it was put out by M. Night Shyamalan in the early 2000s. And I watch it again and again. And I take notes on it. I love that movie. You know, I and saw that so, in the movie
1: theater. I didn't think it had a deep meaning, but maybe I was missing something. I don't know.
0: Oh, it is so deep, man. It is so really? good. Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. And it all comes together in that, not the very last scene, but that high point where they're laying in the yard outside with their son who's not breathing. So, oh, yeah. Um, was a good one. Yeah, so it was a book, a movie, and what was the other? Album album. Oh, that's going to be really rough. Um, that's the toughest guess, one. Yeah, you know what? I guess I would say All the World's a Stage by Rush. It came out in 1977. Okay. And it was their first live album and it was where I got introduced to the amazing drum capabilities of Neil Peart and uh, the amazing bass and guitar of the other guys in the band Rush, and so I, um, I remember the night so clearly when somebody played that album for me, and uh, I was forever a Rush fan in the last 43 years since.
1: Great. You know, a good live album to me is, is worth its weight in gold. I, I completely love that. Well, Paul, it's been phenomenal. Any last words of wisdom or advice or anything you'd want to share with our audience before
0: we wrap up? Absolutely. So I would, you know, say this that when I was when I had that couple million in the bank and I started investing, I really wasn't investing because I was more or less speculating. You know, investing, Brian, is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a cash flow rate of return coming out of it and you have a chance to make a return. So in other words, your principal's safe, and you got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe, and you've got a chance to make a return. And I was a speculator more than an investor for all those years. And I'll say that, uh, you know, though speculators make headlines, and they get uh, they, they might make you know they're the, they're the ones that turned a thousand dollar investment into a million or a billion dollars for people. Those speculators are few and far between. they're the stuff legends were made of. but if you want to be really, really wealthy, my money would be on the Warren Buffett slow strategy of actually investing and boring. You know they Paul Samuelson was the first Nobel Peace Prize winner in economics from the US and he said, as opposed to speculating, investing should be more like watching grass grow or watching paint dry. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. (laughs) There you go. Now, Paul, how can our audience get in touch with you? You know, buy the book, read your content, get in touch with Wellings Capital. Yeah, you can just go to my website, wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com.
1: Wonderful, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you taking the time. I learned a ton. I'm sure our audience did as well. Look forward to keeping in touch and maybe
0: having you back on again. That'd be fantastic, Brian. It was a real honor to be here and I hope uh, hope you have a great week. Yeah, you do the same. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.